you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. It's good to see all of you who are here with us. Um, I want to... Uh, acknowledge all of you who are joining us online, whether it's live online, whether you're watching or listening later, um, and just acknowledging that uh, today as we close out our series um, through the, the miracles in the book of Mark, that we've spent a lot of time over the past, we actually started on Mother's Day and we're closing it on Father's Day, and spending time looking at the idea of the authority that God has, that Jesus has with his words and his actions to perform miracles, the idea that there are storms in our lives and the fact that what Jesus has done for us previously gives us the confidence of how he'll be with us moving forward, the reminder that we all can be freed from suffering, the fact that um, we can be raised to new life, the fact that God provides for us. And so we've looked at different types of miracles, but as we close this morning, we wanted to take a couple moments to um, acknowledge that there still might be many of us who struggle with the idea of miracles, whether it's because it's something that's different than our own experiences. Maybe it's because we don't think that they're possible or whatever it may be, but sometimes we just have a natural tendency. Maybe some of us are a little bit more prone to, to being a little bit skeptical or, or um, not believing rather than believing. And so what we're going to talk about today is being in Mark chapter 9, verse 14, and looking at a story of a dad on Father's Day, looking at a story of a dad who's bringing his son, who's uh, possessed by demons, to Jesus for healing. But before we get there, as we um, think about, some of us are maybe a little bit more, again, prone to to not believing in things or or believing that God can still do amazing things. Um, I had a very small, small experience last night that reminds me of just sometimes you look at something that's going on, you're like, is this really happening? And you want to believe it. You want to believe that a good thing happening is happening, but sometimes you're like, this seems a little too good to be true. So I've shared before that uh, I'm a San Francisco Giants fan, and so, okay, good. So first service, they didn't even, they were just kind of mildly interested. And so at least I got a couple of boos and I do remember where they came from. So that's good. So no, so we had, uh, so last night, um, our girls, um, have been in a recital, a dance recital. Uh, Elise's was on Thursday. Shaylin's was last night on Saturday. And so there'd be times when I was checking the program, which was online and I would look up and I didn't have my, um, airplane mode on, because I was looking at that, and I would get these notifications about the Giants were playing the Dodgers last night. And so it's one of those where, you know, we had won the night before we, as if I had anything to do with it, but if you're a sports fan, we say we. And so we won, and uh, last night it was like, okay, cool, one to zero, like that, that's great. And then I see, oh, four to zero, you know, Lamont Wade Jr. hit a home run, that's great. And then all of a sudden it's like six to zero, and then it's nine to zero. Then it's 12 to 0, until the final score, my fellow Dodger not liking friends, uh, was 15 to 0 that the Giants beat the Dodgers. And so I'm like, this made me feel really great, because, you know, it's like, the Giants um, are great, I love them, but the Dodgers are, I think we can agree, like, as much as we loathe to admit it, they are very good at what they do, and so they've been good for a long time, and so... I'm celebrating the fact that this was on the, the Giants' Twitter page. It was this huge Lamont Wade Jr., this huge picture, 15 to nothing. Uh, let me contrast you to how the Dodgers' Twitter feed communicated it to everybody. Uh, this last one just says, final, 
Giants 15, Dodgers zero. And I'm like, I love it. And so it's one of those where I hope, you know, I know that church is a place where we all come from different backgrounds with different experiences. But for those of us who are uh, either from San Diego or live here now uh, from other places, I hope that we can all agree that's a good day when the Dodgers lose. And so here's the thing. We're really excited. Thank you. See, here we go. So it was one of those where I'd be looking at the score and I'm like, one to nothing, four to nothing. So I'm like, is this, is this actually happening? I want to believe that the Giants are doing this well this evening, but it feels a little unrealistic. And so you just keep following along. And I'm like, okay, they actually did win. And the Dodgers, you know, what, what we don't see is there's 1,490 people who had comments to say about that. But I'm fairly confident those wouldn't be uh, legible, readable at church. And so we'll, we'll just move on. So here's this thing. When we want to believe something, but maybe we don't, or maybe it feels like this is too good to be true, or it feels like this, we, we have this call out that um, maybe it's similar. Maybe you're like this, where it's similar to the father who we'll see in Mark 9, 24, but he has this, this prayer when he goes to Jesus, this request to him. And he talks about, I do believe, I want to believe, Jesus, that you can still do a miracle in my son's life. But he says, help me overcome my unbelief. It's recognizing I want to believe, I want to believe the Giants are beating the Dodgers 15 to zero. And that's a minuscule, like grain of the sand, small amount of the belief I want to have that God still does miracles, that he still is who he says he is, and he still works in incredible ways. But I know that as we close out a series about miracles, about how God answers prayers in incredible ways, that there are going to be some of us who are like, but he didn't answer mine. As we look at how God works, we're saying, but where is God working in my life? And we might say, this feels too good to be true, God, to hear that you still do miracles. I want to believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. So we're going to look at a few different um, questions or problems or struggles that maybe you have all three of these. Maybe you only have one of them. Maybe you don't have any of them, but we all might have kind of common ideas or common struggles we have when it comes towards unbelief and questioning whether God still does miraculous things. So as we close this series, but we open up our sermon, will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service this morning, whether they're live in person, live online, watching or listening later. God, I thank you that each person who hears my voice is someone who is deeply loved by you. That each person who hears my voice, whether they have already or would accept that invitation today to call upon you as Father, for you love us so much. And so, Lord, I pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. Lord, I, I imagine that there are a few people at least in this room that want to believe a good thing about how you are working and what you can still do in our lives and maybe we still struggle with unbelief. Lord, I ask that we, our prayer would echo the prayer of the Father, Mark 9. Lord, we want to believe. Help us to overcome our unbelief this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
As I mentioned, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14, but the context of where this passage starts is important for us. So in the beginning of Mark chapter 9, we see the story of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John are three of Jesus' closest friends. We often see the three of them are kind of in the inner circle that get to experience different things that the others don't. We talked about recently when um, Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, it was them that they got to go with Jesus. It wasn't all the disciples, it was Peter, James, and John with Jesus. Well, the beginning of Mark chapter 9, Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, are able to experience an incredible moment with Jesus, where they go up onto the mountain, and Jesus is transfigured in front of them. And, and, and it's, it's hard to kind of picture what this is like, but it's like we, they get to see his full glory. It's like he radiates this light, and he looks different to them, and yet they know that he's still there, that it's still him. And then they start to see um, Elijah and Moses are hanging out. So it's Elijah, or it's Moses who represents the law, the Torah. Then it's Moses, or I'm getting him backwards, excuse me. It's Moses who represents the law and Torah. It's Elijah that represents the prophets. And then when Jesus talks about that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets, it's the two of them together with Jesus. And they're hanging out at the top of the mountain. And Peter, James, and John are excited to be here. Peter is like, can we build a little tents so we can stay up here for a while? It's good for us to be here. And out of the, the cloud, we hear the voice of God the Father speaking about Jesus, and he says, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. It echoes very similarly to what we see at Jesus' baptism. When God the Father is speaking and the spirit comes down like a dove and Jesus the son is in the water and he says, this is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus experiences in this moment what you and I often have experienced. If we have a relationship with God, and we've had one for any amount of time. We, we know there are seasons in our lives where we feel like we're on the mountaintop. When things are going well, that we feel God's blessings. That we take great joy in being around other believers. That we open up his word and it just feels like every single day, is every single sentence is exactly the thing that we need to hear. And we feel God's presence with us. We have moments in which we are doing so well. That we would never, we're doing so well, in fact, we would never, ever consider even thinking for one moment that God was not with us, that God did not love us, and that God was not good. It would be so clear to us, just as clearly as it was when they saw, when the people, when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured. Jesus would have heard the Father's voice and known that he is loved by his dad. Now, like many of us, Jesus goes from a mountaintop experience, and then he comes down to where real life is lived. Because as much as we would love to have those mountaintop experiences, we don't live lives on the mountaintop spiritually. We don't have that dynamic. We have these moments where God is so clearly with us. And then we go back, and maybe you went to a summer camp when you are growing up, or maybe it's through a VBS, or maybe it's through different times in your life where you're like, God is so good. And then you come home and immediately there's temptation or trial or struggle. Immediately there's frustration. And all of the joy you just experienced can feel like it went away just as quickly as it came. We see Moses has a mountaintop experience, and then he hears about the golden calf idolatry, and he goes from the high of the mountaintop with God to the valley of rebellion and idolatry. We see Elijah has the moment where he's on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, 
and he sees that God clearly reveals himself to be the one true God because the Baal prophets can't get the, the fire to be lit in 1 Kings 18. It's a beautiful passage. And Elijah, he even puts water over the wood of the one that he says, now God, will you show them? And he starts the fire. And then this amazing mountaintop experience. And yet, the queen Jezebel says to Elijah, far be it from me, if I, may God deal, deal with me ever so severely if you are not dead by this time tomorrow. And Elijah gets scared and he runs. And he gets to the point where he's hiding under a tree and he just wishes God would take him because it's all too much. Mountaintop is great, but we live in the valley. Even Jesus had mountaintop experience, a mount, trans, a mount of transfiguration. But then here, verse 14, is when he comes back into the valley, into a circumstance where he shows up and there's arguing and discussing. So the context is important because it paints the picture of why Jesus responds he do, the way he does and how that impacts us when we are going through valley times as well. So we're going to look at a few different things in which that are maybe objections or, or problems that we struggle with in order to overcome our unbelief. Sometimes God has to work with, uh, in us and through us when we navigate certain things like this. The first one is a statement that scientists that miracles, they won't happen. Maybe some people believe in them, but maybe some of us, we think miracles won't happen. That, that's just not going to be my experience. Why? Because we have to help God, or excuse me, ask God to help us in overcoming the problem of pain. It's saying, God, I want to believe that you are able to do this. But when I asked, you didn't, or you weren't there, or it felt like you weren't able to do the thing that I needed you most to do. So I believe, maybe this is what some of us are saying here this morning, I believe, I just believe miracles won't happen. Maybe they're possible, but I don't think they're going to happen to me or for me. Here's how we jump into this, Mark 9, verse 14. When they came, so they being Jesus, Peter, James, and John, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. In verse 17, a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashing his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. And this picture, think about it. Maybe you've been in this place too, where you have a circumstance in your life, whether it's someone you love, whether it's your own life, something going on, and you go, you're like, I want to go to Jesus. And this man had to take his son, who was demon-possessed, had all these awful things happening, and was navigating the crowd because he heard that Jesus was nearby. He had heard about how there were miracles being performed. He had heard about the exorcism, not exercise, but exorcise, getting demons out, from Mark chapter 5 and from Mark chapter 1 earlier. He, he would have heard the story that this man, Jesus, just like all the people, heard about Jesus and ran because they were interested. He says, I'm going to bring my son and maybe Jesus can help him. And yet, when he needed Jesus the most, Jesus wasn't there. He, he said, I, I was looking for you, Jesus. I was bringing you, my son. But the disciples, you weren't there, so I asked the disciples. And what did it say? He said, I asked them to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Friends, some of us, we have, maybe we're similar 
to the Father in the story that we want to believe that God can do stuff. But when we cry out to him, it feels like Jesus isn't there. It feels like we pray and we pray and it feels like we hear no answer. Now, we've talked about this recently, the idea that sometimes God's answer is no. So we want something and we don't see why God wouldn't answer our prayer, but sometimes his answer is no. And we're going to unpack that in a moment. Sometimes the answer is not yet. Sometimes the answer is yes. But God still loves us even if the answer is not what we want to hear. Just like when girls ask me something, if I say no, it doesn't mean I don't love them. It just means that I know what's best for them. There are times God says no. And there are times when it feels like he is just not there when we need him. And so some of us might think, well, then... I don't know how to overcome the problem of pain in my life to the point where I could believe that miracles will happen again. I want to believe it. Lord, help me overcome my unbelief, but right now I just don't because the problem of my pain, the heartache of my pain is too much. There's a, uh, a wonderful book that um, I really enjoy by this author named Gene Edwards. I don't know if you've heard of him before, but um, he wrote his most famous book. is called A Tale of Three Kings, and it's written, and it's, um, what he does is he takes books that are stories from the Bible, but then he, he fleshes out the characters, and he gives some backstory, or he tries to explain further on. So it's not scripture, but it's, it's a narrative that builds on the, the um veracity of scripture, and it builds on actual words and actual things that happen, but he just fleshes it out a bit. So he writes a tale of three kings. It's about the dynamic between Saul, David, and Solomon, which, or, excuse me, Saul, David, um, and Absalom. I'd encourage you to read that, but this one is really beautiful too, because it's called The Prisoner in the Third Cell, and the character from the Bible that he looks at and dives into is John the Baptist, because in John the Baptist, remember his story. John the Baptist is someone that he's Jesus's cousin, he knows that his job, like Zechariah, his dad, when he found out that he was going to have a son named John, he knows that he is the one, John is the prophet that's going to make way the path for the Messiah. John comes on the scene and we see him baptizing people for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. We see him all of a sudden when Jesus comes, he says, behold, this is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And I am not fit to tie his sandals because of how much greater he is than me. He says what is my favorite, my life verse, when John says about Jesus, he says, Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. So see, John recognizes right away who Jesus is, right? He knows his role in that. But the prisoner in the third cell points us and unpacks this season in his life, in John's life, in which he gets arrested. And as he's arrested, his faith starts to waver a little bit. He, he's just not sure that Jesus is who he says he is and that he would do what he said he would do. And we see this. I'm going to pick up. It's not on the screen. So I want you to follow along just listening. Mark, excuse me, Luke 7, starting in verse 20. It says, when John's disciples came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Remember, he had a time when it was so clear to him who God was, who Jesus was. But like him, we have times where we question when things don't go the way we think they should. Verse 21, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. 
So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed, here's the, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So in the story, Gene Edwards is talking about that moment when John is in the prison, he's in the third cell, and, and he hears the report from his disciples. And in the drama, in the narrative, he writes, you hear the, the John the Baptist character saying, wait, what, what did you just say? The disciples say, well, we saw many who were healed and many who did this. And Jesus said, blessed are you who are not, who don't stumble on account of me. And he thinks about, he says, blessed are, or those are, um, there were many who were healed. Many who were cured. Many who saw miracles happen. Many, but not all. That John, who knew Jesus, John, who recognized that the dead were raised and all these different things, he recognized that there's a chance that John was going to stay in that prison. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love him. It doesn't mean that he didn't care about him. But it meant that John, and as we will see, John ended up being beheaded in that prison. But the idea that comes out of this is this story of saying, what do we do with a God when he doesn't meet our expectations? Will we still believe? Will we still believe even when the weight of our pain is so much that we think miracles won't happen? Maybe they'll happen to others, but they won't happen for me. We see other people's family members getting healed. We see other marriages being restored. We see other families being reconnected. We see other people getting jobs. We see other people having their lives restored in amazing ways. And we think, God, what about my miracle? What about my prayer being answered? Where are you? Because it feels like you're not here. And so... That's why these last words in Mark, excuse me, Luke 7, 23, when Jesus sends the disciples, John's disciples back to John, he says, blessed are those who do not stumble on account of me. In other words, he says, blessed are those that even when prayers aren't answered and they stumble in their walk, or even when they don't, I don't know what Jesus is doing, blessed are those who still pray. Blessed are those who still trust. Blessed are those who still love, and blessed are those who still believe. It's much easier said than done. And so Gene Edwards says this. He says, the question is not, why is God doing this? Why is he like this? The question is not, why does he not answer me? The question is not, I need him desperately. Why does he not come rescue me? The question is not, why did God allow this tragedy to happen to me, to my children, to my wife, to my husband, to my family? Nor is it, why does God allow injustices? The question before this house is this. Will you follow a God you do not understand? Will you follow a God who does not live up to your expectations? And this, friends, this is a heavy question that no 45-minute sermon is just going to perfectly wrap up for us. But this is the question that we wrestle with. Do we think that miracles can still happen do we believe that miracles, that God still answers prayer? Or has the weight of our pain, and again, I don't understand, I don't know the depth of your pain, and I don't mean to gloss it over and just say, well, just feel better. No, no, no. 
I acknowledge that there is a weight of grief that I cannot understand in this room or those of you who are watching or joining us later. But while I don't know why something's happened, I do know we can cling on to the who. And while I don't know many things, what I don't know about God does not change the things that I do know about him. And I do know how much he loves us. And I do know that he can work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to the purpose, his purpose. I do know that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. I do know that he hems us in before and behind. I do know that if we trust in him with all our hearts and we not on our own understandings, and we acknowledge him in all of our ways, he can make our path straight. I do know that he never leaves nor forsakes us. And I do know that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, so his love is not contingent upon our goodness. It's contingent upon his own. What I don't know doesn't overshadow that which I already do. So maybe we're at a point where we're saying, miracles, they just won't happen. The, the pain is too much. I can't believe it. I want to believe, but I can't. Or maybe, maybe you're not even there. Maybe for some of you, you're in a place where I just think miracles don't happen. As in, they're not even a thing that exists in the world that maybe some of us might be more inclined to think anything that is proclaimed as a miracle is more just wishful thinking or, or it's a spontaneous um, healing or, or not even healing. We would just say spontaneous remission or a spontaneous something good happened, but we would, some would hesitate to call it a miracle. Because this is us needing God to help us with overcoming the problem of proof, of proof specifically. So Jesus, when he comes down and he's having this moment where he just heard the Father's voice, he's been living or he's been up on the mountaintop and now he's down in the valley and there's an argument and he has a phrase in verse 19 that is very odd to come from the mouth of Christ. He says this, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. How does he say that, right? Like, we, we don't get, this is why text messages, it's always better to do phone calls, and even phone calls, it's always better to do in-person meetings, right? Because we don't understand um, emotion when he's saying it. Is he exasperated? Like, oh, you unbelieving generation. How much longer do I have to put up with you? Is it more remorseful? Is it just, you unbelieving generation, how much longer? What else do I have to do to show you who I am? But the response kind of takes us aback a little bit. And I want to emphasize this idea of the unbelieving generation. Remember, these are people that have seen Jesus exercise demons. These people have seen him feeding the 5,000 men on one side of the lake and then the 4,000 men on the other side of the lake, not including women and children. These are people who have seen him raise people from the dead that make it so that the blind could see, the deaf could hear, and those who could not speak were able to speak. They've been able to see the lame walk. I mean, they've seen miracles. But they say, well, we don't believe it. We see this in the Pharisees in Mark 7. We didn't read the passage, but after the story we shared, it's, they say, well, the Pharisees come up to me, we want to see a sign. And Jesus is like, there's no point in showing you a sign. Because I've already shown so many, but you wouldn't believe anything I do anyways. It's an unbelieving generation. So Ryan Leisure, he um, wrote... Uh, this section about, um, it's about the book Case for Miracles by Lee Strobel, and he's coming from an apologetic perspective. And so Ryan Leisure says this, 
David Hume is someone who is an atheist, someone who um, was science, like he wouldn't, he wouldn't believe in miracles. There's nothing that David Hume would say would be a miracle. So skeptics from, since Hume wrote this a couple hundred years ago, will refer to this argument we're about to read and say, well, this is proof that miracles can't happen. So Hume argued that, quote, miracles were a violation of natural law, yet the natural law is always unalterably uniform. Therefore, no amount of evidence would convince him that God had intervened. That is to say, miracles are impossible, therefore, a miracle didn't happen, which is circular reasoning at its finest. In other words, it's this. It's saying, if point A, or if, if there's a, something you're trying to prove, okay, miracles are impossible. But in order to prove that, then that just means that, therefore, a miracle didn't happen, because it's not possible for miracles to happen becomes this logical fallacy that's just circular reasoning. Point A is only true because B is true, but B is only true because A is true, and so they always just refer back to each other. So it's this idea of the Pharisees would say, show us a sign. Show us a sign and we'll believe. And Jesus knows I've already shown you so many, and everything I've tried to show you, you wouldn't believe me anyways. And so the, the Pharisees would say, show us a sign and we'll believe you, but we won't believe anything you share as a sign. So then therefore, what's the point? Jesus still shows miracles to people who want to know about who he is. But if we are an unbelieving generation to the point where it's, we will only believe in what we see. We, we, we talk about that, right? Seeing is believing. But our faith tells us that believe, faith is being sure what we don't see. It's certain of what we hope for and sure of what we do not see. It's recognizing that Hebrews eleven six says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so there will be some skeptics and people that are brilliant people and wonderful people and great people, but people who will say, I won't believe anything that happens is a miracle. So in that book, The Case for Miracles, uh, Lee Strobel interviews Michael Shermer. Michael Shermer is a former Christian who became an adamant skeptic, and to the point where he literally created like Skeptics Magazine um, and, and online. And so he, the Michael Shermer, he's talking about how there's nothing that you could say to me that would prove that there's a miracle. He would talk about how even if it looks like there's proof, all I can say, this is Michael Shermer talking, saying all I could think of is if I see something that looks like a miracle, I'll just say, well, we can't know for sure because I can't see it. I, I, there's no proof for it. He said that the only way he'd be able to prove or he'd believe that miracles would happen is if there were people who were missing limbs and a limb was grown right in front of them and then that was able to be repeated over and over again. And even then, he might maybe consider that there is such thing as miracles. And then he had someone that was, uh, put an article up on his website um, for his magazine and she's a, she was an um, atheist doctor. And he, wrote, he asked her, what would it take for you to believe that there were miracles? Like that, that was a thing that existed. And she said, you know, if there was a chicken, this is how it starts, if there was a chicken who learned English and then was able to defeat a grandmaster in chess, then I might be able to believe that something was going on. So just for the image, we, we just showed a, a picture of a chicken playing chess. And so imagine this idea that the bar for the miraculous, for someone who's a skeptic, for someone who has circular reasoning, for someone who no miracle would be enough to prove there's a miracle, therefore there's no proof that will be able to solidify it. If the bar for that person is the point where there would have to be a chicken who learned English, and then that chicken 
learned how to play chess so well that it would defeat a world grandmaster. And even then, she didn't use the verbiage miracle. She said, then I might consider something was happening. So there will be people here in this room or people you know that they won't allow for the possibility of the miraculous because they want proof. And that's hard. But in the book, uh, Case for Miracles, by Lee Strobel, he interviews Dr. Can uh, Candy Gunther Brown. She was Harvard educated, and she uh, was a professor, a doctor over at Indiana University. What happens is that she had started to hear, she was interested in finding out about the power of prayer. So she finds out and she hears that, in her words, there was an outbreak of miracles happening in Mozambique. So she gets a team together and she goes to Mozambique and she says, we are going to set up a scientifically valid experiment. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna have, um, we're gonna test people's hearing and their eyesight. We're gonna bring medical equipment, we're gonna record that. Then what we're gonna do is we're gonna have someone who has seen, a Christian who loves the Lord, raise, or put their hands on, this, on the person who is sick and pray for them that God would heal them. Then immediately afterwards, we're gonna go and do the same tests for their hearing and for their sight and we're gonna see what happens. They see that when they do this, that almost every single case had at least some improvement, some drastically so, to the point where there was one woman who her, her hearing was so poor that she couldn't hear the equivalent of a jackhammer right next to her. Like that's the decibel level she couldn't hear. Someone laid hands on her, prayed for her, and afterwards they tested her hearing and she could hear a normal conversation. They did the same thing for eyesight. So they were able to measure then the only variable was prayer, hands on lifting someone up in prayer for healing, and then they tested the results. They said, this is scientifically, it's as important for us to be aware of. So she said, let's repeat this experiment. So then she goes and takes the, does the exact same experiment in Brazil and finds the same results. So what this points us to is the fact that these are peer-reviewed, scientifically valid, in like non-Christian, like, journals about science that show here they have they have no agenda in order to promote prayer they're they're just trying to say here's what the results say and there could be proof now for those of us who know and love god and want to believe that a good miracle answering god answering prayer dynamic is here we say yes that's proof for others that's still difficult and i understand that i acknowledge that so maybe for some of us we think miracles won't happen because there's too much pain in our lives Maybe some of us, we think miracles don't happen because there's no proof. We, there's no fact that it's even possible. Some of us might be more akin to the dad in the story who thinks, you know, he maybe gets to a point where his unbelief goes so strong that like he might think that miracles can't happen, overcoming the problem of unbelief. See, he, he comes and he said, you didn't answer my prayer. You weren't even here, Jesus, when I needed you. Your people couldn't answer my prayer. And so then Jesus says, you know, bring, bring the boy to me. And as he does that, we continue the story on. It says this, starting in verse um, 20. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, 
Everything is possible for one who believes. Verse 24, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Maybe some of us think that we have to have the full amount of belief in order to have God work, but we see that even as faith as small as a mustard seed can see incredible things happening. But maybe if we're honest, we think, I'm hurt by the fact that, you know, God, you, Jesus, you weren't here to answer my prayer initially. I don't even know if miracles are possible. And yet when he's questioning, he's like, if you can. Jesus, or the, the man says, if you can do anything, take pity on us, help us. And you can hear the father's voice just wondering, is there anything you can do? Because we've tried and it's been like this for years and there's no hope. And Jesus, again, is it, he says, if you can. It's like everything is possible. Not just anything, not like a mild he feels better for a day, but everything is possible for him who believes. Does that mean that everything will always happen for him or her who believes? No. We recognize that, but it's saying everything is possible for the one who believes. So the boy's father recognizes right away. I do believe, I want to believe a good thing is possible. Help me overcome the questions I have, the problems I'm experiencing. Help me overcome my unbelief. So we sit here and we think, okay, maybe some of us have so much pain in our lives, we just think miracles won't happen. To, they were not going to happen to us. Maybe we don't, we see, we, we, we don't have the openness to seeing how God works. We think there's just no proof for this. So we just think they're not, they're not even possible. They don't happen to anybody. And others think maybe they can, but maybe they can't. Because my unbelief, I've been wear, worn down, I've been heartbroken, I've been crestfallen. The tears that have stained my pillow point me to the fact that, I don't know, God help me overcome my unbelief because right now, I'm not believing you can do this. So wherever you are in that, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that as we close today, that miracles still happen. God still does things that far more than we can ever hope for or imagine. And it reminds us to remember, or it shows us to remember the power of prayer. And I'm going to unpack specifically the idea of power and prayer because it, um, it's important for us to distinguish what those mean. But let's close out the story as we continue on verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, Come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. So the disciples in Mark 6, they've been commissioned to go out. They were given the authority to be able to exercise demons. They were given the authority to provide healing. And so they say, why couldn't we drive that one out? And they pull, pulled them aside privately because they had just been embarrassed publicly. Say, Jesus, we, we, we did what you said. We, we, we laid our hands on him. We prayed in your name. Or, you know, why couldn't, you know, why couldn't, we, why couldn't we do that? He says, this kind of only comes out through prayer. So here's what that shows us. So here's what is helpful for us to remember is that the power doesn't come from us, the ones who pray. The power comes from the one to whom we pray. 
James 5.17 talks about how Elijah was an ordinary man, but yet when he prayed that, the, that there would be no more rain for three years, it didn't rain. And so he's an ordinary man. It's not about the power of the prayer. Now, the prayer of, of, of an, excuse me, the prayer of a faithful person is, is a powerful and effective. So we know that in James as well. It's that same section. But it's not about the power of the prayer. It's about the one to whom we pray. And it's also reminding us to still be persevering in prayer. That when we're sitting here and we think that God has healed many but not me. God has helped many but not me. We can give up and then say, well, then he doesn't answer prayers. He won't answer prayers. He won't do miracles. And I don't think he can. Or we can remember that everything is possible for him who believes. It's not a guarantee, but I guarantee things won't change if we don't seek him out. So it's this idea of recognizing we persevere through prayer. We keep asking God even when we don't see evidence of it. Are we willing to trust and follow a God who doesn't match our expectations because the truth is that his love for us is greater than anything we could hope for or imagine or expect. So let me give you a closing, uh, a closing story. Here's a picture of Pastor Dwayne Miller. So as his picture is there, um, I want to read a little bit about him. That in 1990, Dwayne Miller was serving as a senior pastor at First Baptist Church in Brenham, Texas, where he contracted a flu virus. According to Miller, he says, in January, I contracted a flu virus that ultimately penetrated the myelin sheath of my vocal folds and damaged the nerve tissue beyond repair. The damage of the virus on his vocal folds permanently damaged the nerve tissue. He sought medical help because a pastor's voice is essential to his or her occupation. Over the next three years, he saw some 63 specialists plus their teams totaling over 200 medical professionals. They all arrived at the conclusion that Dwayne would never speak normally again, and the raspy whisper that he had would not last another 18 months. Unable to speak clearly, Dwayne Miller resigns his post in 1991, and he moves to Houston. Um, and he began, they began, he and his wife began attending Houston First Baptist Church, and one year later, he was asked to teach an adult Sunday school class. He initially declined because he feared that no one would understand him, but after some persistence, he agreed. He, he continues on. He shares in April 92, the teacher of the catacombs, which is the Sunday school class that met in the basement, which is why it's called the catacombs, uh, had to take some time away for personal reasons. The directors, a husband and wife, asked Miller if I would, if I would fill in while a permanent replacement was sought. I protested that I was too hard to understand, which was met with, well, we'll listen really carefully. I've come to understand that they asked, not because I was such a profound teacher, but because they loved me and knew how desperately I needed to teach. But the despair and pain that Miller had felt days prior overwhelmed him to the point of contemplating suicide. He says, two days previous, I sat for hours in my living room with a shotgun in my mouth, and I come to the end of myself. He came through, his, he came through that, and on January 17, 1993, was scheduled to teach through Psalm 103, which was the curriculum assigned from the Bible book series for that day. But Miller says he experienced intense feelings of conflict and doubt. He says, quote, I stood to teach the class of 150 or more on that morning. I had never been more emotionally drained than I was that morning. I had never had less faith than I did that morning. Will you join me and turn our attention to the screens as we see what God did in Miller's life that morning? 
So when the psalmist writes, and he heals all of my diseases, let me say to you that I believe God still heals. That hasn't ended. That is not over. Now you have to be careful on how you do this. Because there are folks who carry things to an excess and it becomes a show. And God has never intended that that be what it is. God heals in his sovereign will. I don't know why God does things that he does. But I know that he does. And the only thing he requires of me is to allow him to be God and me to be me and let it be. To say that every single person will always be healed because Jesus died on the cross is a misinterpretation of scripture. Not true. Won't work. Isaiah 53 doesn't talk about physical healing. I'm sorry. That's just not the context. And to impress that there causes a misinterpretation of scripture. That's wrong. On the other hand, to say that, since we don't have anything after the book of Acts, that miracles ended at the book of Acts and they never happen again, is equally as wrong. Because you have put God in a box both ways. And he doesn't want to be in the box. So, the psalmist says, I'm excited, bless the Lord, O my soul. One of his benefits is, he heals all of my diseases. And then in verse 4 he says, and he redeems my life from the pit. Now, I like that verse just a whole lot. I have had, and you have had in times past, pit experiences. We've both had, we've all had times when our life seemed to be in a pit, in a grave. And we didn't have an answer for the pit we find ourselves in. And I don't understand this right now. I'm but overwhelmed at the moment. I'm not quite sure what to say or do. <laughs> I'm uh, Sounds funny to say at a loss for words. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. I He says this. He says, While I was speaking, I was swallowing choke free. And I'll never forget my thought. Is that what I think it is? In other words, is this too good to be true? Is it possible? Miller visited doctors over the following days, all of whom confirmed that his voice had been fully restored. 
He says, doctors confirmed that it was what I thought it was when I saw them the following days. It had been totally restored. And to quote my lead physician, quote, I can't find any evidence that you ever had a voice problem. And the event was caught on tape, as we just saw, in the most casual way. The event changed my life and has affected literally millions of people worldwide. So we hear this idea of miracles don't happen. They won't happen. They can't happen. We say, we want proof. Oh, we, can, we can see things like the study from Dr. Brown, or we can hear videos like this, like, well, there's so much pain. And, and you know, we want proof because it's, it's just a spontaneous remission of his vocal cord problem. Now, friends, in some ways, I don't want this to sound flippant, in some ways, I feel like it would take more faith to believe that that wasn't God working when he's talking specifically about healing. That it was spontaneously happening when he's preaching about healing passage. Like, that's an incredible, if you were to believe in such things, coincidence. But for those of us who don't believe in such things, it's miraculous. That we start to see that, you know, maybe you don't have an experience like that. But miracles still happen. Maybe it's something where we just say, as he said, what God asks of us is to let God be God, that we have to trust him even when we don't see him, that we believe him even when we don't feel him, and we keep praying to him even when we question why, because we recognize no matter what the why is, we can always cling to the who. He says, you let God be God, he lets me be me, and then he says, and let it be. In other words, our translation of the word let it be is the word we say at the end of every prayer, which is amen. It's keeping our prayer to God. Say, God, let it be. I don't know what you have in store, but I believe you can do miracles. I believe you will do miracles. And even if you don't, in my specific circumstance, I still believe you are good, I still believe you are God, and I still believe miracles can happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of um, our service today, Lord. And I, again, I recognize that a 45-minute message is not enough to, to navigate all the pain and weights and, and, and difficulty that could be when we think about some of these topics today. But Lord, over this past series, you've revealed to us, or you've reminded us, rather, of the fact that you are God. And we don't understand the why of what happens, but we can cling to you as the who in the midst of it. That our hope in you, Jesus, is an anchor for our souls in the storms of this life. That we recognize that you can still do incredible things, miraculous things. May we not have eyes that are closed to that, but may we look around and see every day as a miracle. May we recognize that every person with whom we speak is a miracle. May we recognize that every person we look in the eye is someone that you created and you love and you set Jesus to die for and that the Holy Spirit wants to draw closer to you today and that they are miracles. May we recognize the fact, God, may we recognize the fact that you still are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, I pray for those now who they are crying out because they've seen many others experience miracles, but they're struggling today. Father, we persevere in praying alongside them. And we pray that you would either do a miraculous thing in their lives or that you would keep them persevering to know that everything is possible, not promised or guaranteed, but everything is possible for us who believe. So Lord, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. 
If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.